This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The COVID-19 outbreak is, of course, killing people in large numbers and ravaging our economy. But it is also bringing with it the potential for significant national security challenges. We've talked to former Deputy Director and Acting Director of CIA John McLaughlin about those challenges on a podcast just two weeks ago. But today I wanted to share my own thoughts with you on that question. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a bonus episode of Intelligence Matters. We'll be right back in a moment. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. COVID-19 poses not only significant risks to our public health and to our economy, it also poses substantial risks to our national security. And if we don't manage those risks effectively, that is, if we don't marshal the right policy responses, the damage to our national security could, I think, turn out to be every bit as severe as the public health and the economic consequences of the disease. And in some cases, the national security implications could be longer lasting than the public health or economic consequences. Let me start here with a caveat. So the analysis that I'm going to share with you assumes that COVID-19 will be with us for some time, perhaps 18 to 24 months, which is the current opinion of many medical experts, barring a breakthrough with either a vaccine or an antiviral treatment. If we got such a breakthrough soon, which I think is unlikely, but if we got one soon, the national security issues that I'm going to walk through would be of less concern. So I see seven potential national security consequences of COVID. I want to walk through each one of them. I'm going to save the most important one to the end because it actually 
builds on some of the previous ones. The European Union, the world's largest economic bloc, says its economy shrank at the sharpest pace on record in the first quarter. France registered its worst economic slowdown since the Second World War. So, number one, a financial crisis in emerging markets. The longer this goes on, the higher the probability of a significant financial debt or currency crisis in emerging markets. This is obviously important because with their high growth rates and their high trade dependencies, these economies have an oversized influence on the global economy. And it's also important because much of the money they owe is to Western governments and to Western financial institutions. So this is important. Going into the COVID crisis, emerging market economies were not as healthy as they could have been. Economic growth was already slowing, largely due to an economic slowdown in China pre-crisis, and they were highly leveraged economies. What does highly leveraged mean? Lots of debt. So public and private debt in emerging markets at the end of 2019 was 165 to 170% of GDP, up from only 70% in 2007. So very high. In the initial weeks of the global outbreak of COVID, capital quickly began to flee emerging markets as investors looked for safety in dollar-denominated assets. And a net $90 billion left emerging markets in the first quarter of this year. That's more than double the amount of capital flight in any single quarter during the Great Recession. So a huge outflow of capital as a result of COVID. At the same time, as the US dollar strengthens, the dollar-denominated debts of emerging markets require more local currency to service. So to emerging markets, their debt burden is rising. They see it rising. The IMF has provided significant funding, some $15 billion, to a number of countries in the world as a result of COVID. But all of that has gone to the poorest countries in the world. The money has not gone to emerging markets. So what's going to happen in these emerging markets? I think economic growth there is already taking a big hit, and it will take a big hit from a COVID-induced domestic economic slowdown in those countries. And from the dramatic slowdown in the world economy, right? So they won't be exporting as much as they were before. There's going to be reduced tourism, and that's important in many of these countries. And there's going to be reduced remittances from their citizens who are working overseas. So all of that's going to go down. So they're going to take a big economic hit. Emerging markets, the governments there will not be able to deal with the public health aspects of the virus in their own populations. And the vast majority of them have limited fiscal and monetary tools to deal with the economic crisis that they're going to face. So the result is that many of them were not going to be able to service their debts. So the result, I think, is going to be a long line at the IMF and the World Bank as these countries look to restructure their debt and look for bailouts. Who's most at risk? I think it's the overlap between countries, emerging markets where the virus is raging, emerging markets with large debt burdens, and emerging markets that have big trade dependencies. 
And so when I look at all emerging markets and I look at those three things, the list of countries that jumps out to me is Mexico, South Africa, Colombia, Indonesia, Turkey, and Ukraine. But there'll probably be others that get added to the list in the weeks and months ahead. El Salvador's president says criminal gangs are taking advantage of the coronavirus pandemic. More than 50 people have been killed in three days of violence in the tiny Central American country. Number two, growing political instability. So the longer COVID lasts, the more likely we are to see a surge in political instability across the globe. So think about an Arab Spring style movement or a color revolution style movements just in many more countries and you know, literally around the globe, not in one particular region. I think in the short term, the disease is a disincentive for popular protests, but as time goes by, the politics of this are going to become more dangerous for many leaders. Populations around the globe are, are already angry, and they're going to become more angry with the performance of their governments with regard to both the public health response and the response to the economic crisis. And I think some of these populations are going to demand change. And some of that anger could even turn in to political violence. You know, why does this matter? Because political instability is not healthy for the world economy. It won't be healthy for the recovery from the COVID decline. It can cause people to move across borders. It can create ungoverned territory where extremists can take root and it can potentially significantly undermine our strategic interests. Let me just give you two examples of that point. So think about Jordan, a country of great importance to the United States. So think about Jordan looking like Syria or Iraq, and think about a political crisis in Pakistan that results in the emergence of an extremist government there, You know, one that happens to have nuclear weapons. Both of those would be huge strategic blows to the United States. There are already early signs of such political instability in the world from developed countries like Italy to less developed countries like Ukraine, Venezuela, Brazil, Italy, Colombia, and Peru. And I think that list is going to grow in the weeks and months ahead. Of the populations most vulnerable to a COVID-19 outbreak, the world's 26 million refugees are at the top of that list. They often live in close quarters with access to only basic health and sanitation facilities. An outbreak of the virus could be devastating. Number three is a crisis in conflict zones. So conflict zones are areas where war is raging or areas just in the aftermath of war. And both of these areas, from a, a COVID perspective, are at significant risk. So many people in these countries are living in refugee camps. They're living in very close proximity to each other. They're living in unsanitary conditions. They're living in situations with water, food, and medical care in short supply. The governments or pseudo-governments in these places are simply not able to deal with the health crisis that's at their doorstep. The result will be taking, I think we'll be taking already existing humanitarian crisis and making them much worse. Many people are going to die. Some will go on the move and try to cross borders to get to where they believe is a better place. 
in a worst case scenario, you can imagine people being actually being shot as they try to cross borders or actually getting through borders and increasing the health risk to their new homes. Which conflict zones deserve the most attention? I think it's the overlap between conflict states where there's a current outbreak and conflict states where migration could put us or our allies and partners at risk. That would include Iraq, Syria, and Libya with Europe being the place where refugees would want to go. Afghanistan with Pakistan being the go-to place. Somalia with Kenya being the place that people would want to go. And Yemen with Saudi Arabia or Oman as the place where people want to go. By the way, the, the virus is, is ripping through Yemen as, as we speak. I would add just one more country to this crisis list, although it does not technically meet the strict definition of a conflict state because it's not at war now and it wasn't at war recently, but it does, I think, meet the spirit of the definition, and that's Venezuela, with Colombia being the place where refugees will want to go. There are already nearly 2 million Venezuelan refugees living in Colombia, and that number could could skyrocket. Shutting down ABS-CBN in the Philippines would be like shutting down CBS, ABC, or NBC in the United States. It's important to remember that Duterte has been threatening to close ABS-CBN since 2016, ever since he was elected president. Now, the channel has aired reports that have been critical of him, including his war on drugs. That's been called brutal and has left thousands of people dead and without due process. Number four is reinforcing the already existing trend toward authoritarianism. I think there's two dynamics at play here. The first is a perception. And let me emphasize the word perception that authoritarian governments have been better able to deal with the crisis than have democracies. I think this perception opens publics to anti-democratic moves by their governments, makes them more accepting of them. And second, I think it leads anti-democratic leaders to try to take advantage of the crisis to accrue power. They're, they're going to claim they need power in their hands to protect their populations but they will have a long-term objective in mind of getting that power and not giving it up. We've already seen this play out in places like Hungary and the Philippines, where both legislatures have granted extraordinary powers to the executive. And we've seen it in places like Bolivia and Sri Lanka, where elections have been canceled. So I think there's going to be much more of this to follow. One more important point here. The perception that authoritarian governments are better able to handle the crisis or have been better able to handle the crisis is, I think, a myth created largely by the authoritarians. It's simply not supported by the facts. One only has to look at Iran and how poorly they've dealt with the crisis and look at New Zealand, South Korea, Taiwan and how well they've handled the crisis to know that this argument about authoritarianism simply doesn't hold water. The U.S. military says the fight against ISIS is continuing. The U.S. supported Iraqi forces with airstrikes during a recent operation, but there were no advisors on the ground. And due to the coronavirus outbreak, the U.S. military now says it's using drones to observe Iraqi training. Some NATO countries have pulled their troops out of Iraq. Now we get to number five. 
a boost to ISIS. So before COVID, ISIS was reconstituting in Iraq and Syria, largely in the border area between Iraq and Syria, both because the pressure on it had been reduced and because of the ongoing political problems in Iraq, which have just reinforced Sunni concerns in Iraq about their interests being protected by the government, which leads them more open to working with ISIS. Now you add to that dynamic, that already existing dynamic, COVID, which has significantly reduced the strength of Iraqi security forces by half. And it's not because these security forces are sick. It's because only half of them are coming to work at any time for social distancing reasons. Try to try to make sure that the virus doesn't, doesn't rip through their ranks. The result of all, all this is that ISIS attacks are up. They're way up. The latest was in Samarra just two days ago, just 80 miles north of Baghdad. And the arrest of four ISIS operatives in Germany a couple of weeks ago suggests that the group is beginning to reestablish its Western reach. So I think I think ISIS, we need to pay attention to ISIS here. Iran is dealing with the pandemic of coronavirus. On top of this, they were looking to get some sort of an indefinite weapons ban. Do you think this is going to sort of escalate the tensions between the U.S. and Iran at this point? You know, the coronavirus crisis hasn't masked the larger strategic competition between the U.S. and Iran. Now we get to number six, which I call the wild card that is Iran. Many people have asked me whether Iran, Russia, or North Korea might try to take advantage of the COVID crisis. I'm not particularly worried about North Korea because I don't believe that Kim Jong-un would order or do the two things that would put his relationship with President Trump at risk, and that's test a nuclear weapon or test an ICBM. I think that Kim still hopes to use his relationship with the president to get a nuclear deal that is advantageous to the North, You know, a deal where he gives up a little of his nuclear weapons program in exchange for significant sanctions relief. So I don't think he's going to do anything to, to, to upset that possibility. Likewise, I'm not too worried about Russia because while Putin always has an eye open for opportunities to strengthen his position or to weaken ours, and while the Russians are absolutely using and pushing out anti-Western COVID-related themes in their propaganda, Putin is becoming more inwardly focused every day as his COVID-19 cases reach a critical mass. Iran, however, may be a very different story. Iran, through its its proxies, has for months continued to harass the United States and Iraq. And as COVID has taken hold, it's now back to harassing shipping in the Persian Gulf. And it has also taken other provocative steps, such as just launching a, quote, military, unquote, satellite clearly designed to send a message to the United States that they're intent on making progress on the development of an ICBM. I think the Iranians may have several objectives here. The first is to deepen the divide between the United States and Europe over our respective policies toward Iran. I think it's very interesting that our allies in Europe have not criticized Iran at all for its recent activities in the Gulf or the ICBM te- or the satellite launch. Second, 
I think the Iranians are trying to unify a population at home that is restive, that is unhappy with the government. And third, and this is just a possibility, but the Iranians may believe that through pressure now on the US and Iraq, at a time when we're focused inward, it may just convince the president to say, enough is enough, we're getting out of Iraq. So Iran's yet again malign behavior in the Gulf and in Iraq risks putting us right back where we were several months ago with significantly higher tensions between us and the Iranians and even getting back to possibly the prospect of war where we were several months ago. So I think very important to pay attention to Iraq. This is something could have been contained at the original location, and I think it could have been contained relatively easily. China is a very sophisticated country, and they could have contained it. They were either unable to or they chose not to, and the world has suffered greatly. And then seventh, and lastly, and I think by far the most important national security consequence of COVID is a possible major inflection point in the U.S.-China strategic rivalry. So one of China's primary foreign policy objectives is obtaining significant international influence, primarily in East Asia, but also globally. Why does this matter to us? Because the extent to which China gets that influence, it will use it primarily for China's economic advantage. It will write the rules and standards in its favor. It will pressure other countries to make decisions that are in its favor. And a good chunk of those times, that will be to our economic or strategic disadvantage. So so what's happening as a result of COVID? Beijing sees, without a doubt, Beijing sees the current situation as a massive opportunity to take a major step forward in shifting global influence to China and away from the country that has that influence now, and that's the United States. So what is Beijing doing? Through old-fashioned diplomacy and international aid and through a growing disinformation campaign, the Chinese are portraying themselves as the provider of last resort for global health and contrasting that with the West's inability to play that role. As our most recent guest on the podcast, um, Chris Johnson, talked about, the Chinese are trying to change the narrative from the country where COVID-19 began and where it got its legs, in part through early policy mismanagement, to the country that has best managed the disease and the country that is best able to help others. So what specifically are the Chinese doing? On the diplomatic front, while our leaders are hunkered down, looking inward, China's top leaders are making multiple phone calls a day to foreign leaders, just checking in with them, asking them how they're doing, asking them if they need anything. Beijing is also proposing a number of initiatives in the G20 context, none with any possibility of becoming real, but simply trying to appear, Beijing trying to appear that it is a responsible global leader. On international aid, I think everybody knows that China is now providing medical supplies, trained medical personnel, medical advice, 
on handling the disease to many countries. I don't think people know that it is now 120 countries that are receiving that assistance. The Chinese are basically providing such assistance to any country that asks. And then on the information and propaganda front, China's effort is aggressive and it encompasses both an overt and a covert piece. This is a significant change for the Chinese. The Chinese have long focused on censoring certain information from getting to its own population and on messaging particular themes to its population. They still do that, but now they've added to that a significant external communications program. So the overt message that they're sending out is one of solidarity between China and the world. For example, one of the one of the most popular tweets in Italy in early April was one put out by the Chinese embassy in Rome. It had a pair of drawings. The first it depicted Italian support to China during a devastating Chinese earthquake in 2008. And the second was a drawing of Chinese support to Italy today on COVID-19. And the text of the tweet in Italian said, and I quote, you may have forgotten, but we will remember forever. Now it's up to us to help you, unquote. That's a pretty powerful message when you couple it with the medical support that the Chinese are providing. The covert messaging is employing some of the same tools that the Russians used in interfering in the 2016 election. And these messages range from coronavirus being a U.S. biological weapon gone wrong to the United States not being capable of handling the crisis in its own country to the United States, NATO, and the EU not being capable of helping other countries. Another covert theme that the Chinese are putting out, one we talked about earlier, is that authoritarian governments are getting this right and democracies aren't. And lastly, the Chinese covert messaging is also starting to amplify some of Russia's anti-Western COVID-19 related themes, giving that Russian messaging even broader distribution. So I think in the weeks and months ahead that Beijing is going to take additional steps to drive home this concept of China to the rescue. I think this is likely to play out on the economic front, one by stimulating demand in China, getting Chinese growth going, and thereby increasing exports from those countries that export to China. The Chinese will will take advantage of that in a messaging sense. And then second, when we talked about a potential financial crisis in emerging markets and those countries lining up at the IMF and the World Bank, the IMF and the World Bank aren't going to have enough money to help all of them. Well, who has the money? China. And they're going to they're gonna garner a heck of a lot of influence if they choose to use their money to help those countries. And they're also likely to take a bigger bite of control in the IMF and the World Bank in the process. So this is something that we need to react to. This is something we need to pay attention to, but the Chinese see this as a significant opportunity. So just to sum up very quickly, there are significant national security issues here that we need to be paying attention to at exactly the same time that we need to be paying attention to the public health issues and the economic issues that flow from COVID-19. 
That was a bonus podcast on the national security implications of coronavirus. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another regular episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.